Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode, I sit down with Marco Radicevic and Fernando Cipriano to talk about everything. I actually had a list that I had prepared for these two guys. Listen, I really enjoy sitting down with these two individuals and just shooting the shit a little bit. So I made a list. I had a, ta I had a list mapped out of housing, um, the US 10-year bond and the economy and what it all means to us Canadians here and how it might affect the Canadian real estate market. And then about Bitcoin and the media and life in general you know, personal views on life and business views on life. And the first 20 minutes, I didn't expect, but we discussed self-belief and confidence and decision-making. And I really enjoyed that particular chat. So if you're listening to this for the first 20 minutes, we get into that topic. And then we go into all these other wonderful, uh, wonderful areas of discussion. Hopefully enjoy this episode as much as I had recording it. And if you are listening to this, and you wanna dive into the world of real estate and you're not really sure where to begin, you need some research, you can get access to different YouTube videos that we put out, other podcasts like this, some of them where we share and interview clients of Rockstar and they share their journey and story in the real estate investing adventure and links to free copies of our book are on that website, digital copies of our book that we hand out. Basically everything that we do is available at rockstarinnercircle.com. That's rockstarinnercircle.com. That's enough with this intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Caradza. Are you ready? Let's go. We are here with Marco Radicevic and uh, yeah, I'm kind of blanking. I want to say it properly. Fernando Cipriano. That's right. Cipriano. I don't know why I keep thinking I'm going to say Cipriano you know sometimes. What? Cipriano. In, in Cipriano. Italian, it is pronounced Cipriano. Oh, I think you've told me that like five okay. times and that's I keep okay. forgetting. That's okay. One day I'll remember. But uh, what, why are you looking at me like that? Why don't you say my name properly in Croatian then? Radosovic. Wrong. Is that better? How do you say it? Radosevic. Oh, Radosevic. Oh. Oh, well, I like how you just shot me down there. It's a beautiful Wrong. language, isn't it? It. I don't know if yeah. Croatian language is a beautiful language. It sounded nice. I feel like the Italian. Language. Can you lift up the mic? Just to yeah. angle the mic. There we go. There we go. Tweak this a little bit. Um, so, Fernando, what you were in? You spend a big chunk of the year in Bahamas. I do. What? Wh why? Why are you doing that? That's just like a lifestyle thing for you now yeah, at this point. It's more of a lifestyle thing. I mean, you know, people sometimes assume it's for tax reasons. Not at all. Um, we have a home there, and, and now that the kids have grown up, it's something that I've always wanted to do, which is live part of the year away. And while most people spend the winters down south, I'm not so fussed about that. I, I spend the summer as well, and I'll just go back and forth. Whenever the kids need me here, I'll, I come back, and other parts of the year, I'm there. Yeah, that feels like a nice life. So you have a community of friends down there. You can go golfing with, out yes. for dinner. You have people you can go out for dinner with. Correct. It's a small community. It's a gated community where we live, and a lot of friends, and great golf course and yeah it's it's a really self-contained place where you know great gym great restaurants on site you know mm -hmm. the the golf course and friends just like here so it's it's just another mm -hmm. here you've set up a nice nice life for yourself i mean th this was always a goal it was always a goal but um you know I, I think more people can do that than they think they can it's it's why, why are you saying that Wow, this is, uh, you really want to, I'll tell you, it's yeah. funny, I have a friend of mine who, um, he, he probably said this to me once, and I'll, I'll make this very quick. It, it was probably the most profound thing that, that I'd heard in, on this subject. 
And he said to me, it was a time when he had come back from a March break trip with his kids and his wife, and they went to Cuba. And he'd said to me, you know, Fernando, I was thinking about it. And, and we paid about during March break, which is the busiest and most expensive time of the year, one of the most expensive. He said, we paid about $1,200 a person. I mean, you know, Cuba is, you know, a reasonable place to go. And he said, um, you know, it dawned on me that, you know, of that $1,200, about four or 500 of it was probably the flight because we have big taxes on airlines here, right? So that means the hotel itself got about $700 for the week per person. Now he said, if I had gone to that hotel and said, you know what, I want to rent a room for the entire year, not just on March break, they wouldn't charge you $700 a week because there's times when the hotel's empty in the summer. So they would likely give it to you for probably $1,000 a month easily. So he said, so think about this. If I go to that hotel and rent it for $1,000 a month per person, my wife and I it would cost us $2,000 a month or $24,000 a year. He said, now, most people that live in the GTA, right, with a home that they own, have at least, just by real estate appreciation, have at least half a million dollars of equity tied up in their houses. They could sell their house take that $500,000 and do nothing with it. Don't even invest it and simply draw the $24,000 a year to stay in this hotel. You could live in Cuba for over 20 years and there you would have your bed made every day, all you can eat and all you can drink and sit on a beach day after day after day. So, you know, everyone aspires to retire one day on the beach and his view, and I think it was bang on, was why do you have to wait until you're 65 or 70 why not do it now? You can do it now. It's just that I think most people, they either they're stuck in this notion of I've got to save X amount of million dollars, $2 million, $3 million, or they're just, you know, they don't realize that there are many beautiful places in the world that you can retire on very inexpensively with what you've got today. Okay, maybe you can't drive two beautiful cars when you're there that are brand new. Maybe you can't dine out in Michelin star restaurants every every week, but you don't need to. And so that's a long answer to your question of you. No, it's important, I think. So is this just like a social construct that we have made for ourselves where people never even think about that kind of thing? Because I think you're right. I think when I see the highway, how packed it is every morning, I'm always thinking, is the majority of the population just kind of driving to a job they don't like? saving some arbitrary number for their retirement that they're really not sure what that number should be right. because they don't really study that. And I don't, I'm not blaming anyone. They don't study the economy. They don't study the markets and they kind of have their life just slipping by them instead of maybe stepping back and having these kinds of thoughts to, to say, Hey, I can live a totally different life. Why does that, why, why are we like that? Or, or, well, I think somebody has got to work in a factory. Somebody has to be a garbage man. Somebody has to be a teacher. Um, and not everybody owns their own business and has the ability to say, well, I'm going to go stay in the Bahamas for six months and come back home and work for six months or work. I in think the what Fernando's saying is, Hey, just sell your house. You could go live there for 20 years. You have $500,000 in equity at $24,000 a year. Yeah, but So if you do that at 55 and you live to 75, well, then you take the pill and you're done. Well, no, I, I think <laughs> you, you run know, out of money. You run out of money. You find, yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. So the, fe the it's fear, the fear, it's fear out of running. Oh, yeah, it's fear. So it's I fear out of running out of money is yeah. what holds us in place. I, I don't, you know, I wonder whether it's the, the fact that, you, that you're saying there's fear assumes that people have gone through this mental exercise mm. and concluded that no, I cannot afford it. I would submit to you that people are just in a sort of trance. And you go to work every day and you stay in that traffic because you think you have to. And 
And I don't think they step back and say, what is my long-term goal? I always say whenever, I love to talk to people. I just love to asking questions about, you know, when someone tells me what they do for a living and I don't really know what the job is, I always say, tell me what a day in the life of that is because I have not a clue. And, you know, I always like to ask people, so what's your sort of, what, what does retirement look like for you? Like do you, or, or is retirement even something you want to consider? Some people say I could never retire. I like to do things. I'm, I respect that completely. But for those people that actually have a dream of retirement and it's just a fantasy, I, I always say, but if I could say to you, snap my finger today and you could do that, would you do it? And I think most people would say, boy, that's scary. Now you're making me make a decision. And I think, again, it comes down to, I think people have difficulty making decisions. That's my conclusion. That's my conclusion on a lot of things. Whether it's a menu that has far too many items and people labor over, what should I get, this and that. I just say, make a decision because it's probably not going to be wrong. And even if you are wrong, so Marco, to your point, let's say they did do that and they go off and they're starting to run out of money. Okay, no problem, go back. And, and go back to work. I mean, I, I, I say this a lot to my wife. I say, almost every decision is reversible. So don't get so fussed about it. Don't, don't paralyze yourself with the inability to make that decision because you're afraid of making the wrong decision. Wrong decisions, so what? So you painted the house the wrong color. Yeah, I know, we're gonna have to bear more cost to pay, repaint it or live with it. But if that's the worst case, so what? So I'm proposing something radical here. I'm saying, you know, sell your house and go off to the Caribbean. That's not what I'm proposing. But what I am saying is, if that's your ultimate goal, stop thinking that there is a number because that number will always be just out of reach. Always. It'll always feel just out of reach. And I think people do that on purpose. I think they deliberately keep it just out of reach so that they don't have to act on it. Well, it's right? funny because I actually, like what you were saying there about making decisions, I think is gigantic. Mm. I, I say to my kids all the time, the worst decision is no decision. Absolutely. Right? When you get to a fork in the road, the most important thing to do is go left or right yeah. because if you don't, you're going to crash. And you can deal with the ramifications of, of going left or right, but the worst one is no decision. Agreed. And I do think most people are, and I don't want to, I don't want to now belittle people who, who work nine to five, 45 hours a week and, you know, say they're sleepwalking through life. But I, it happens to me too. It happens to everybody. I think where you just start to go through the motions. Uh, part of it, I think, depends on where you are in a stage in your life. I think you had children younger than me. You and I are not that differently aged, but my kids are younger than mm -hmm. yours. So I'm not really going to be doing too much for probably another 10 years um, in terms of, you know, changing my life and moving to another country for six months out of the year. But I do think a lot of us fall into a routine. The routine is comfortable. It might not even be great. We might be bitching and complaining about that routine. Oh my God, traffic. Oh my God, this country's cold. This country sucks. But we do it for 10 years without even thinking about making a change. Right. So I, I agree with you. I have a very wealthy friend that when um, I sold my business about 10 years ago, he didn't believe that I was going to retire. He said, there's no way. You, you, a, a person with that DNA, you start a, you know, an investment firm, you grow it, you sell it. He underestimated my, my probably your resolve, my, my laziness, <laughs> maybe my laziness. But I said to him, I said, Michael, you know, you, you I'll, I'll show you that's it for me. I checked out. That was enough. And my view was, and this person's incredibly wealthy. I'm not going to say who it is, but, um, but my view was, so why are you continuing to start new businesses? Congratulations on all your success. I said, you know, each one you're, you're, you've got the Midas touch, but 
you have so much money that your kids can't spend it, your grandkids can't spend it, your great-grandkids can't spend it. So it becomes almost an act of madness, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, it would be the equivalent of you continuing to cook a meal and keep making more and more food knowing that all you need is one plate. Yeah, that's a good it, analogy. It becomes an act of madness. Now, I actually think, have you lost your mind? Why are you still running if you've reached... So how did you come to the decision that the money you sold your business for, and we don't need to get into actual mm-hmm. numbers here, was enough and that you didn't have the fear of running out of money? I didn't because, know if it was and, enough. And, and anyone listening to this, mm-hmm. they might say to themselves, well, Fernando sold his business for so much yeah. money that it's not a concern for him. But I'm sure you still had that thought. that like you were. So how did you deal with that? Well, again, my, my view was... You know, I don't know if this is enough money. I think it is. And I think it's enough for my kids. And, and, um, but my view was, so what if I'm wrong? If, if, if this isn't enough money, it's not like I'm going to wake up one day and it's all gone. There will be, you know, a, a sort of a runway where I can see, you know what, my numbers are off here. Things are not going the way I thought. And then I'll adjust my plan. Like, you know, people always think that the, that the result of a bad decision is, complete calamity. You cannot recover from that. But like I said to you, it's not like I was going to wake up one day and my banker called me and said, by the way, you've got zero in your account. I would see that my math was wrong. You would see it coming. (laughs) And then I'll go back to work. I did it once. It's not like I've lost my skill. You know, I, I still believe my skills are transferable to other, other roles. So, or I lower my life uh, requirements. So the choke points in a, someone's life to live the ideal life they want are perhaps fear and perhaps inability to make decisions. Because I talk about that a lot with Nick, that sometimes we will see people get into investment real estate and they will just hem and haw for so long that years will go by. Mm. And we always say, hey guys, like you can sell the property. It's going to cost exactly. you legal fees. There's going to be, I'm not, I'm not saying it's, there's not some financial pain right. in selling a property, especially if you sell it early, but you can sell the property. And I also tried to explain that you need to make mistakes in life because the mistakes or the failures are kind of like the raw material for good decisions. Without enough raw material, without enough mistakes, you don't really know what works for you. So you actually kind of need all the mistakes and the mistakes only come from making decisions. So one of the things I've always felt in my life was a benefit to me, not that I do this perfectly by any means, is my ability just to make decisions and just say, hey, you know, we're gonna do this. I'll quit my job, I will do this. I'll buy this property, we'll try a student rental, we'll try a rental and we'll do all this madness. And then from all the mistakes, you kind of learn what works and you can kind of guide yourself. I actually think the most successful people that I know are the ones who make strong decisions. And they've made a lot of mistakes, but it's the people who kind of just go through the motions and and I think there's a, a, a certain risk tolerance that some people have and maybe you're born that way, maybe you're, you know, bred that way. I don't know what the right term for that is, but, um, making decisions is, is gigantic. And, and like, I don't know if you remember when, uh, John and I were looking for commercial properties and mm-hmm. properties to house our business. And we'd gone to see a few places with Tom over the years. And I said to him, how am I going to make this decision? And I remember Tom said to me, he goes, if you're waiting for there to be clear evidence on a piece of paper that this is 100% the right decision, he goes, you will never right. ever buy property. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, how will I ever be 100% sure of anything? Mm -hmm. And I think we bought a building, you know, within six months after that. And it was the worst financial decision we ever made. I'm joking. We didn't buy it through Rockstar. You You guys are both bang on in terms of when, when I look at the most successful people, the one common characteristic, it's not, you know, 
age, it's not experience, it's not backgrounds, it's not education, it's not any of that. It's what you just said. It's the ability to make decisions. Now, before people, if they're listening to this, and it feels somewhat discouraging if you're like, well, I'm not a good decision maker. It can, Here's the for beauty. sure, I'm just thinking It's about a muscle. I mean, the, the ability to make decision is no different than a muscle. You wouldn't go to the gym after never working out and lifting 80 pound dumbbells. You would work your way up. So what I would encourage people to do is get you know practiced at making decisions and simple decisions. Go to a restaurant and say, you know what? Within 30 seconds, I'm going to pick what I want from this menu. Because you start with that. And then oh, you really, you've really thought about this. This is oh, a big deal to this, you. I'm not kidding when I say this. Every time someone asks me, what is the secret to like any kind of success? I always say, it's one thing. Make a decision. I make tons of wrong decisions. Tons of them. All the time. But I never don't make a decision. Because now what I've learned to do is I always say, this is the trick. Assume that you, if you make the worst decision on this example, can you live with the consequence of that decision? So whatever that is. So in other words, with a menu, if what's the worst case scenario? You hate the meal, right? That's, that would be the worst case scenario. Nothing worse than that. So what does that mean? Can you live with that? Can you live with hating the meal that came to your table? Well, the reality is you could either ask them to take it back and get something else or go home and eat something because you're still hungry. If you can live with that consequence, then try something new on the menu because that's not bad. What you'll find is every decision has that. In other words, what is the worst case scenario? As you said, mm -hmm. you buy the wrong building. What's the worst case scenario? Well, you might have to sell it and take a loss of the real estate fees. Are you willing to live with that? If you're not, then don't do it. I understand that. But if you can live with the consequence, because what I think most people do is they miscalculate the consequence because they don't go through the trouble of actually articulating it. So what they say is, I can't make that decision because if I'm wrong, I'm going to go bankrupt. Well, Correct. no, you're not because you could still, there's still an asset there that you're selling. You're not going to lose everything. Yeah. And you've right? gained all the knowledge. I wonder if you guys have a self-belief that has come from decision-making, because if I look at both of you from this side of the table and I see what you've both done, I'm curious as to whether you had a self-belief, a certain confidence in yourself that if you made the wrong decision, you'd be able to recover, or did it come from making all those wrong decisions and then just proceeding like you're saying, did you just make the decisions and then you know, know that you could, the worst that was going to happen, like you said, is that you got a bad meal and that's not a big deal and you're practicing your decision-making skills. Or did you have such a strong self-belief of yourself that you knew making a wrong decision wasn't that big of a deal because you were going to, you were going to get by, you were going to get through. Mm -hmm. I think I'm curious and I don't know you, Fernando, long enough to know that. I know Marco, you know, for a long time and I feel like watching him you've always had a self-belief in yourself. See, I, I was going to, I don't see it that so, way. And, it, and maybe, yeah. maybe it's different perspective because you've known me for a long time. So you see me, you know, from a different perspective. And I, I look in a mirror for me, it's been an evolution. Um, I feel that, you know, that I remember, uh, when I was like actually working in the corporate world and they would use the term, I forget if it was paralysis by analysis or analysis by paralysis. And you can have all the information in front of you and be 98% of the way there, but you can't make a decision. So you go and you redo the entire analysis again, hoping that that number will go from 98 to 100. And you can just keep staring at that spreadsheet. And because the thing is, is you innately are not ready to make that decision. And I think what Fernando is talking about, and I never looked at it about it this way, is like, it's a muscle. It is. 
And when you start to make some of those decisions um, in your life, like you've always said to me, like I made such a huge move by starting out as an entrepreneur very young. Mm. Um, for me, that wasn't, uh, I didn't look in the mirror and say, I've had enough. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Right. I didn't do that. <laughs> you know, it was, it was more a natural evolution for me. I worked at a place I didn't like being managed by other people. I think that was more what necessitated my move into being my own boss. I didn't like having seven layers of management. I didn't fit into that box. That drove me You don't like insane. one layer of management. No. <laughs> you ask my wife. My wife's like, he does not like to be told what to do. You want me to go left, tell me to go right, yeah. and it'll happen. Yeah. Um, but I, I do. I, I, it's funny because I'm trying as hard as I can right now to instill in my children this ability to make decisions. And I, the, the thing that you just said about the, uh, the menu and the restaurant, like little things like that, I think, are critical to teach people, teach children, uh, go forward. Don't be afraid uh, of making a mistake. Who cares? Falling down is part of the process. In fact, falling down is the best thing that can happen to you, right? Because falling off of the first step is much better than falling off the 10th step. Um, if you're lucky and you make it to the 10th step, well, guess what? That fall could hurt a lot more. Um, so falling down, whether it's sports, school, uh, anything, all of these different things in why, life. Why are you trying to teach them that right now? What's going on that you're trying to teach them? I see so many people in my life who have difficulty making decisions. And wow, I had no idea this yeah, was going to be such a topic it's, for us. It, it, yeah. It's actually crazy because I think about this all the time. Really? All the time. I, 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 I talk about this with, with my wife all the time about people's inability to make decisions. And look, it affects some people more dramatically than others. Some people can get through life quite successfully with making small conservative decisions. Um, and what I'm, I'm starting to see, because there's you and I have had this discussion about is university good? Um, and I do. I think university is a good experience. I want my children to go there. But one of the things that I look back when I look at the friends that I had who dropped out uh, after high school, the ones who went to college and the ones who went to university, the, the math when we were going to school is you go to university, you go to university, you make more money. Um, and for the most part, I would think that that's true if you look at, you know, the average take home for those three categories. But what I've seen a lot with friends who dropped out of like or, or didn't go past high school or went to college, there is none of that analysis by paralysis. They're more instinctive. Whereas a lot of people who I know that I consider very intelligent people that went to university, they are overanalyzing every decision. And as Fernando says, they're making it seem as if, well, if I buy this house for a million dollars, that means I might lose a million dollars. Well, you're probably not going to lose a million. Worst case scenario, you know, it could end up badly for you. I don't want to pretend it can't, but it's not going to go to zero, right. right? So I'm not sitting here saying, guys, go out there and go buy million dollar houses. Nothing bad can happen. It, can, it, it Sure. Can. And I don't think anyone's taking it. Right. Way, but, yeah. but make the decision, do it, you know, change jobs. If, if you're not happy, like right now in this economy, I didn't know I was going to get two motivational speakers. I know it's, today. it's crazy <laughs> though, but like I, I, I have, you know, people in my life that I, I tell them the best way to get a raise is change jobs. Mm -hmm. It is by far the best way, but people are comfortable. They don't want to make that decision. They don't want that change, right? People are afraid of change. Uh, and I think that, uh, I, I don't want my kids to be afraid to make those decisions. And, and this is beyond, uh, your, your financial, um, uh, oh yeah, just life. this is like yes. make a decision on, you know, my, you my niece got a right. job at pink. You know, that lingerie, I yeah. think it's like, uh, you know, lingerie store or whatever. And I was gonna say underwear store, but it's a lingerie store. Anyway, she was saying it's her first job 
she couldn't believe how people couldn't make decisions. Mm -hmm. They would find like one bra and put it down and she would be helping them decide. And they, then they would say they can't decide between like the plain color and some like outrageous other color. And she was just saying, well, why don't you just get both? And that was like a light bulb moment for so many people she's helping because they never pro they were, they were going back and forth on which one to get. And she said, well, you know what? There's a sale. If you get both, it's actually a little bit cheaper to buy the right. second one. Why don't you just buy both? And they would have these light bulb moments. And she's been blown away. I guess she's 18. She's blown away at how people can't make decisions. But do you see the point? So just hearing you guys say that, and then this was a conversation over Thanksgiving dinner just a few days ago. And uh, hearing you guys say but that. You I'm see like, the well, trance that people are in. Yeah. This person thought, not that they couldn't afford to, they were in such a trance. They thought, I have to buy this one or this one. Not realizing that you can buy both. Yeah, and, and, and it's a better deal. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I, I'll leave this on one thing. I just want to, this reminds me, the idea of not making a decision is, is being static, right? And I so loathe the idea of standing still that I've often said, it's as a joke, but I said, you know when you put, go into Google Maps and you put a destination in and it tells you either the, the fastest route or the shortest route? The shortest route sometimes is slower because there could be traffic or it's whatever. I said, they should have a third option and I would always choose it. And that way, and that would be the route that you never stop driving because I hate traffic yeah. so much that I will drive out of my way just to avoid traffic. So if you're telling me that I could either sit in traffic for an hour or drive continuously for an hour and a half, I'll drive for an hour and a half. Because I'd rather move. Yeah, many of us are similar for and sure. And that's, I, I think that's sort of symbi you know, yeah. symbolic of this whole conversation. I'd rather move than sit still. Okay, I didn't know we were okay. going to talk about that. I'm glad, I'm glad we did. Anyway. So I want to show you guys a couple charts here um, that are up on the screen. I'm not sharing these right now with everyone, just uh, so I'll have to describe them. There's a graph here that's showing the population in Canada. And for, I guess, the last 20 years, if we got, you know, in the 90s, if we got 250,000, um, you know, plus natural population growth and we hit like 300,000, it was huge. Then through the early 2000s, we got about a population growth in this country of about 300,000 people a year. That's what I'm showing on this chart for everybody listening. And then from 2010 to 2015, we kind of bumped up to 350, which is, you know, percentage wise, a good increase. And then after 2015, things exploded. And part of the reason that things exploded is we got a lot of non-permanent residents through universities and schools that really weren't accounted in the immigration number. So we had a big immigration target, plus we had non-permanent residents coming in through the school system. That was a liberal government change in 2015. That exploded population. So for those of you listening, population growth in this country started going over 400,000 people a year around the year 2016 or so, and then trended up about 500,000 a year. So this is now marginally, this is, this is actually a huge percentage difference from the early 2000s. Then we had COVID, it came kind of down, and then now we just had our biggest ever at 700,000 people year over year growth in this country. Wow. Does that Which, include the students? That's yeah, that's a, that's gen, complete population. And there's some arguing, uh, I was going to say Rado, some arguing Rado on is the student, are the student numbers captured in the government numbers? Are they not captured? Do they fill it when we do censuses? Censuses? Sensei. Sensei? Sensei. You're a sensei. When we send out the sensei, <laughs> the census, we, uh, are they actually filling them out, returning them? So there's definitely a number that's lost. And there's some people, uh, um, Moffitt does some research on that. Um, but anyway, and then there's the population growth um, hitting 700,000. So we've gone from like wow. 250 to 300,000 and now hitting 700,000. There's one more chart I want to show you here. And it's the current real estate market right now. The number of new listings uh, that are on the market as of September um, 
is at a 20-year low. So the number of new product or new inventory. inventory on the market. So we have a population boom. We have very low inventory. And the reason I want to show you those two charts specifically is because the real estate market's taken a hit. Mm-hmm in this country. And I'm interested in, you know, just what comes to mind, like when you guys are talking to friends or, you know, what are, what are you talking about? Fernando, I know you recently moved a couple of times. I don't know if that plays in, into it at all, but when you see numbers like this, what do you think about the real estate market short and long term? What, what comes to mind for you? I mean, this tells me it's healthy long term, um, low supply, high demand, uh, really speaks for itself. You know, this is, this is why we were just, you know, talking before we turned the mics on about, you know, my specific situation might be a little bit tighter than I expected at this point, but I'm not worried about it, you know, in a, in a two, five, 10 year time frame. Just generally, can you describe your specific situation at a high level? Yeah. Well, we, we own a home right now and we're building a second home. Um, I did the same thing. Not uh, to keep, you're going to move. Correct. Yeah. Um, and I did the same thing three years ago and three years ago I was nervous. So I sold my house and I rented while I was building because I didn't want right, to get I caught. I forgot you did that. Yeah. And I, I didn't totally want to get caught with two homes. But this time um, you haven't done that. Correct. Uh, I've decided because there, there is a, a significant amount of inconvenience to it, um, you know, moving, selling, uh, waiting, and then, you know, the, there's a cost associated with that as well. Your house is supposed to take 12 months to get built and it ends up taking 18. So, you know, you're paying that rent, which, um, you know, choose into, into, your, into your pocket. And I think I did that because of fear. I was afraid of getting stuck with two homes. What would I do? But when I look back now, I, I could have afforded it. And if I got stuck with two homes, it actually would have worked out better for me because I would have rented out the last home and I would have held it as an asset. And when I look at the price of what that home was three years ago today, even with the market downturn now, it's significantly higher. So, you know, my mentality right now is I would like to sell the house that I'm in as I move into the new home. But if the market's depressed, rental rates are great right now. So I'll rent that house. Listen, could things continue to deteriorate and get worse. Yeah, it could. Uh, but I, that, that's the decision that I decided to make this time. So do you find yourself spending more time following the economy? I think I know the answer to this, but like the economy and interest rates and stuff because of your involvement in the real estate market or no, it's still yeah, cursory. Yeah, 100%. You know, like a lot of, uh, you, know, you know, me, you and Al have spoken uh, ad nauseum about what we think is going to happen with interest rates. And none of us were shocked that interest rates came up. We anticipated inflation coming into the system. We didn't map out exactly, you know, when and how much inflation would be and how much interest rate would go up. But, you know, I call it the Tom plan. You know, I think interest rates are going to go up one or two more times. And then I think interest rates are going to start coming down. And I think they're going to start printing money. And I think the housing market's going to get back on fire. Don't ask me exactly when. Is that going to be in three months, six months, 18 or 24 months, or maybe three years? So trying to time that perfectly could be tricky. But I mean, we can go right into the weeds when you start talking about uh, sovereign debt and things like that. How much further can they continue mm-hmm. to put interest rates up? Uh, Fernando, what do you think about what his, his uh, housing in general and then specifically on what Marco just said about, you know, inflation and rates and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff? Where, where are you coming from? Well, you know, I think um, the, the reason that people are asking these questions is because there's no clarity here. I mean, there's there's a lot like you showed some great data that, that would support the notion that, you know, home prices are stable. They're going to go up because there's lots of, mm-hmm. you know, immigration and, and very well, they haven't been, they haven't been stable in the short term, just right. to be clear, but, but medium and long right. term, you're, but, but, you're saying I'm suggesting that. Right. And what I'm saying is the data, the data would suggest that if you have lots of people coming into our country, they have to buy homes. So that's going to support 
a stable real estate market and a growing real estate market. On the flip side, though, and that's where the lack of clarity comes in. On the flip side, you've got these issues of higher interest rates. Um, you know, but again, th that would hurt because, as you know, you do stress testing when banks are lending money. They do stress testing. And people now can only qualify for a much smaller mortgage than they could before. So that means that they can't afford houses in the current price range. So naturally, they start to come down. Now, that's why we've seen them already come down in parts of the GTA. I think it's up probably 20% from the February highs. Are, are They're down 20%, I think the number is. Mm -hmm. That's not alarming because they were up dramatically leading up to February. Yeah, it's tough when you, you pick know, like the exactly. absolute peak, when you but, pick but the yes, absolute you're, peak. you're right. I mean, even in 1989 when they peaked out and then they fell for seven straight years until 1996, they fell by 40%. You're which, one of the few people who know that data. Well, you know? I'm an old guy, yeah. so of course I do. <laughs> but you know, when if you had bought at the, at the very peak in 89 and you... By 1996, you would have lost 40% of your equity in your home, and you wouldn't have recovered that for another five or six years after that. But again, that would be very bad timing. You picked the very top, sold at the very bottom. Our family did that, Fernando. And so did You're my welcome. parents. So did my <laughs> parents. But I, I think what supports our Canadian real estate market even more than the American one is a couple of things. Number one, our banks are much more conservative in their lending. So as a result, people have to put much more down before they buy. Unlike in the US where people can borrow over 100%, and I mean over 100% of their purchase price. Some people borrow 105%. And in the US, it's much more, you know, you have a lot more lenders like regional banks. In Canada, we're lucky that we have five main banks. They have an oligopoly. You think that's lucky? It's lucky because we're conservative by nature, Canadians yeah, yeah. are. So we only trust these five banks, right? CIBC, yeah. Royal Bank, et cetera. In the US, banks are regional. So they have to compete with one another. They don't have, I mean, they have Citigroup as a big bank. Yeah. But other than that, the banks are all regional. If you go into a state or into a city, you'll have Johnson Local Bank. That's the Johnson family that owns that bank. So they're competing. And the way they compete is to like lend that, more though. and more money. That's why, I, that's why I was saying you think that's lucky because I like the competition. Well, you say that, but the problem with competition is they become much more lax in their lending rules. And that's what caused the crisis in 2008 is that they were lending people all the money they wanted. Let them fail. And they did, and the, the the country almost failed, and their real estate prices fell by over 60% in Florida, Arizona, Nevada, California. In Canada... I think I'm an asshole. Uh, I, I believe in that. Uh, I agree. You know, uh, <laughs> you know what? I, I, I believe... Let, let it fail. You How know, else do okay. we clean the... No, no, I, but I'm curious in your opinion yeah, here so, because I'm like, clean the system. Sure. Because now we didn't let them fail. We let the small banks fail. Some smaller banks did have major problems. We didn't let the big ones fail. And now we're in a situation where they're... The, I feel like the buck has been passed to the government. Government saved Wall Street. Mm -hmm. 1998 long-term capital management, Wall Street saved that one hedge fund that almost right. took everything down. The Russian so Wall ruble. Street saved itself. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The Thai bot went around yep. the world, the Russian ruble, the Asian crisis, long-term long capital management almost fails. Wall Street came in and had to save one of its own. Mm -hmm. 2008, Wall Street has had too much debt. Government has stepped in, saved Wall Street in 2008. Right. Now we're in 2022, and I feel like governments have all the debt. So we've just kind of passed this buck. What's the next sure. thing? So I guess that's where I'm coming from. So and, and the, to your question of what do I think about real estate, as Marco explained it, I, I tend to agree with you. The other big thing that this came as a surprise to me, and I know you'll know it because it's your industry. It's not my industry, real estate. But what surprised me was in Canada, um, the groups are broken up in thirds, almost a third. I'm rounding numbers up, but it's close. A third of Canadians rent 
I don't know if this, tell me which number surprises you, Marco. A third of Canadians rent, a third own their houses outright with no debt, and a third have mortgages. So wow. what that tells us is the only people that are really impacted I, I'm, I'm by higher by the third that own their house outright. It's yeah. a third. So that shows you that increasing interest rates only affect a third of homeowners in Canada. Therein lies our stability over the American real estate market. Mm-hmm. That's that, for sure valid. Yes. Right? Yep. So, so that's why I'm not going so far as to say I'm bullish on real estate. I think it, it's ne- definitely going to go up in the next few years. I wouldn't be surprised if we're static over the next five years. But I do, I do believe you won't see the same kind of pullback, a 30, 40, 50% you know, price reduction like you saw in the U.S., for those reasons. So I'm sort of on the fence, which is a terrible answer, but no, I think, uh, I think I'm on the fence. Yeah. You know, I'm leaning one way on it. I'm not, I'm not sure of any of this. Mm-hmm. Here's um, another number I just wanted to show you. This is the greater golden horseshoe. So the smart prosperity Institute put this research out on the left-hand column. It says we need 1.2 million homes by the year 2031. And we are on pace in the greater golden horseshoe area to build about 70,000 a year. And we'll have 700,000. So at the end of 2031, we'll have a shortfall of 500,000 homes. Mm-hmm. Or if there's 2.1 people in each home, we're short a population center of a million people wow. who need homes. The, the population of Mississauga is like 850,000. So at the end of 10 years in this area, we are short one city size of Mississauga. Wow. So to me, when I see that, I'm like, not only is it healthy, like we might actually have a, pr- like, this is a problem. Do like this is a, this is a problem. Possible? Do you think it's possible or what do you foresee the future of immigration being? Do you think we will continue to see five to 700,000 people a year coming, 300,000? Do you think a change in government could result in a drastic cut in immigration? No, I, yeah, because you're thinking if like a, the PC government gets in, maybe we're not as receptive to immigration here. We change our forecast. Potentially, I mean, I, I can't I see that because allure, it feels like we're short on workers already. Agreed. I think we're short on workers because we've done such a good job of getting people who are very highly educated. We're a point-based system here. You're bringing in money or you're bringing in education or you're bringing in both. And when my father came here, he had no money and no education. So he'll put, you know, he'll work at Canada Meat Packers and put up parquet floors. And I think here for, for next to no money. But I think here right now, we are attracting a quality of immigrant. And we could be proud of it as a country that is so high. We actually have a problem in some of the non-skilled labor jobs because people who are coming here either have money or they have skill. They don't want those jobs. But I think the allure of free educate, quote unquote, free education and healthcare just continues to bring immigration no matter who's in government here. Like it's safe, Canada's relatively safe. Our banking system to Fernando's point, even though I joke about it mm-hmm. sometimes. It is stable. It's, it's, it's pretty stable. Thing. Let's yeah. face it. You put money in the bank here. I was going uh, to bring up. Yeah, I just stopped. I'm, I just stopped I'm, I'm myself. I just himself. heard, I just oh, heard no, of Trudeau. I just heard of the, but yeah, I just heard myself talk about the, the freezing of the bank accounts. Anyway, banking system's relatively safe here. Um, it's a safe community to raise your children in. We hear that from people from all around the world. And then free education and free um, health care. I think we continue to get immigration here. Okay. Yeah, I, I just, so how do we start to build more houses? Because that sounds like that's what we need to do. We need to build more we, homes. Yeah, we need a cooperation between municipal, provincial, and federal level, levels of government. You can't have the federal level of government say, we're going to bring all this Im- immigration, which is great for the country and we need it for our economy, and not have the provincial and municipal levels planning for housing. At this point in the country, if someone wants to build a duplex next to somebody who has a single family home, they're going to go to their city council and argue against it and sometimes win. 
So we can't even produce more housing. We need a coordination of three levels of government, which to me is next to impossible, which makes me think here a single family home rental property that anybody owns in this area or a nice condo in Toronto is a unicorn. Yeah. Because I think 10 years from now, you're going to look back and say, wow, how does Fernando's family or Marco's family or anyone's family have two rental properties in, in the Toronto area? It'll be like Paris and Rome and right. Florence. I think some of it might be a, a change in design. I mean, if you think about it, we're, we're just, we've been so fortunate with so much land in Canada that people get used to the idea of single detached homes, big backyards. If you look at Europe, I mean, Italy is an example. I mean, Italy's smaller than Ontario, but has almost double our population in Canada. I mean, so how do you fit over 60 million people into a place that's smaller than Ontario? Well, I'll tell you how. They live in smaller apartments. They, you know, we're not used to... Yeah, it's easier to provide services so, too. So you even that million two shortfall of homes that you were just pointing out, the way you address that is high density more high density because that's the way Europe works. Europe has Agreed. a huge population with- But we very, can't get the approvals. Somebody right, wants I'm to saying, build a triplex and you're you right. get- That's, I think, and I agree with you. You'll, you'll need- uh, Coordination. Coordination of, of different governments. But I think that's the solution. Mm -hmm. It's not building, you know, single family homes. It'll be apartments and that's okay. Europe lives that way. I have something else to throw your way. Now on the chart, on the screen, I have the U.S. 10-year Treasury note. And the reason that I have this is this is kind of like a benchmark rate for around the world. This yep. is always referred to as kind of like a de facto standard kind of rate of return or however you want to think about this. And currently it's 3.9, which in, you know, the last 10 years, you know, or the last year specifically in the last few months, it's spiked up really high. And some of the reasons for this increase are up for debate. But some of the best summary that I've seen around this come from a gentleman on Twitter uh, known as Luke Groman. Known as, like that's not his name. He's known as Luke Groman. Okay. <laughs> anyway, his name, he summarized this really well. And I, I really liked it. He said, basically, energy costs of going up because of the war with Russia and Ukraine. So because that's happening, countries like Japan and now the UK just last week, two weeks ago, had some problems. They need to buy energy. Energy prices are way up in order to fund some of these purchases, they're selling US treasuries. So they have on their balance sheet US treasuries because they've been able to save some of these up to fund some of their energy purchases. They're selling US tre treasuries, they're dumping them on the market. It creates a lot of supply. Because there's so much supply, rates end up going up because that's just the way the market works, right? People are dumping this on the market, rates end up going up to kind of attract, I'm simplifying here, but you know, trying to uh, attract new buyers into that space. And until the price of energy comes down, you have more and more countries, especially in Europe, that might be forced into this situation. And if they are dumping U.S. treasuries to buy energy, it puts the U.S. in a precarious situation because in order to defend what is considered the foundation of the financial system, the treasury market or the bond market, the safest asset you could buy, the Fed is going to have to come in at some point and start QE all over again because there needs to be a buyer for these things. And his argument is that until energy prices come down, there's going to be more supply dumped on the market than demand. And I thought that was kind of like an interesting way to kind of, to, and I'm going to take it a step further because I'm going to put something else up on the screen for you because I, I, I like talking about these things. He basically summarized it to these six points that, in order to fix the solution globally right now, 
where the price of money is going higher and higher and it's affecting the real estate market, it's affecting all of us on the streets locally, is that there needs to be a miracle energy solution. Idea number one, solve the energy problem in Russia with uh, Russia and the Ukraine by quick some other energy solution. Idea number two, cut government spending which the UK tried about two and a half weeks ago. And as soon as the UK announced that they were gonna cut spending and decrease taxes on the population, their bond market almost exploded. And the Bank of England, three days later, had to come in and buy, reverse yeah, reverse it. So that, that idea has kind of been tested and it looks like it's not going over too well. Print more money, but debt is already super high and we already have inflation. That's number three. Number four is raise rates. Try to make your currency stronger, raise, raise interest rates, attract capital in. If you're the UK and you want capital flowing in because you need money into your country to buy energy, raise rates. But when you raise rates, when debt's already really high, now your interest expenses are, are, are higher on your own debt. Number five, sell American USD assets like US treasuries to finance your energy deficits. And number six, make a deal with Russia to buy energy in your local currency. So instead of the UK buying in US dollars, so selling US treasuries to raise US dollars to buy energy, buy them in pounds and make a deal with Russia to say, hey, take my pounds and when you buy stuff back from us, we'll take our pounds back and at the end of every month, we'll settle in something like gold. We'll settle in some other asset and we're just gonna cut the US treasury out of the equation here. And then what the UK gets is they can print all the money they need to buy energy. They make a deal with someone like Russia to do trade together directly in non-US dollars and they have now solved the problem. And I, there's a, a lot on this screen, but I'm curious when you guys see this stuff, what, what comes to mind for you with what you see geopolitically right now? Fernando, you're, you're not, yeah, yeah you I go don't for know it. if you're, I buy this. You're, yeah, yeah, you're I, I shaking your head I'm pretty strongly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Tell me what you think. Tell me what you think. Number one, I, I, I think this is putting a lot of the, um, the blame of what's happening around the world on energy. And I'm not convinced that's the blame. In fact, energy prices have come down dramatically. I mean, a few months ago, oil was trading at $130 a barrel. It's now at 80. Mm -hmm. So it's down a lot. I think I, Luke Groman, I think you said, um, smart guy. I don't know who he is. He sounds smart, but I would oversimplify it even more. To me, the U.S. Treasury, the 10-year, we're talking about interest rates here. And that thing is governed by what the central banks are doing to their interest rates. Every government is raising rates. But let's take a step back and say, why do governments mess around with rates? Why do they raise them? Why do they cut them? The reality is rates historically have always been used as a tool to help the economy. Sometimes it's used to slow down the economy and other times it's used to speed it up. So this is where central banks around the world got in trouble and made a mistake. During COVID, when all these governments were printing money. Now people, we're on the same page. Right. When, now when, we're on the same page. When people had all this money, they couldn't go on vacations. They couldn't go out to dinner. So they started spending it on cars, on, you know, renovations if they could find contractors, clothes, ordering it through Amazon, all these things. And so as a result, inflation started to go up. What is inflation? All it means is, is that people, People with a lot of money are chasing fewer and fewer goods. So naturally, prices have to go up. If you're on Amazon and you have 10 items that you want to sell, and now all these people have this free money from the government and they all want to buy it, the first thing you do is you start to raise prices. That's inflation. So the governments mistakenly thought that that inflation was going to be what they used the term transitory. 
meaning that it was going to be temporary, that once COVID passed, prices would naturally come down. That's where they made their mistake. Because what happened was COVID ended, people went back to work, and prices were still high. Energy prices were high. Commodity prices were high. Restaurant prices were high. Everything stayed high. Now, here's where they got into trouble. When you have inflation and prices are going up, that means everything's going well. The economy's working well. People are spending money. People are having a lot of money. Governments at that point realize, oh shoot, we better not let this get out of hand because if prices keep going up, eventually something breaks. That's where governments historically have used interest rates. They then raise rates so that now your line of credit- They didn't use that when the real estate market was going up for 10 years. You're right, you're right. But but historically what you want to do is you want to raise rates so that your line of credit can't be used as a piggy bank. Now where you might say, well, I want to get a pool in my backyard- in the past, when your line of credit was at prime minus 50 basis points and the bank was charging you you know, 2% for that money, you'd be like, honey, let's just do it because it's, it's free. free money, it's right? Free. So they raise rates so that you stop spending money. And then naturally, now why else do they raise rates? They raise rates so that when the economy slows, now how do you get people spending again when they're not spending, when they've lost their jobs, when you know people are at home, when they don't have a lot of money? How do you get people to start spending? You know how? You start cutting rates. It's like a sale. Why do you see car companies in the past, they would cut loan rates, you know, 0% financing on a car. Why are they doing that? Because they want you to buy cars. So you use interest rates to either coax people into spending money or slow people down when they're spending too much. What happens though, if your interest rates are close to zero, like they were, and people are spending money, and then you crash into a recession? What happens when you're in a recession, people are unemployed, and rates are at zero? How do you get people to spend money now? How do you get a company to hire more people? Can't you just print money and send it out? Well, I understand that that's not as that's more common that that's more recent this idea of covid but what i'm saying is back to your point i don't think this is tied to just energy i think this is tied to governments made a mistake by not raising rates during covid so they should is, have done that they're trying to fix it and now they're worried that if we go into a recession mm -hmm. right now we have a million open jobs so people are fully employed but if we go into a recession which everyone's predicting and they say europe is already in a recession how do you get yourself out of recession if interest rates are low? You can't. Then that's where you have what's called stagflation. And that's a destructor of an economy. Because now you have people with no money. Mm -hmm. They're already at low interest rates, so they're not using yep. their lines of credit because they can't afford them. How do you get things running again? That's why... They need the tool. Yeah. You need that tool. Yeah, it's, we're basically fucked. <laughs> That's how I look at it, because if you look at what happened, you know, with uh, with Paul Volcker, you know, back in the, the late 70s, early 80s, the tools that they had available to them were no not much different than today. But sovereign debt was nothing compared to what it is today. Right. So you can't take interest rates up to 11 percent. Like imagine if you did that right now, mm -hmm. what would happen? Yeah. At three percent, the U.S. debt would cost a trillion dollars in interest if all the debt rolls over at three point two percent interest. The 30 trillion dollars in U.S. debt would cost you a trillion dollars in interest payments. So sorry to your yeah. point, you yeah. can't raise the rates. Yeah. Like I, I'm 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 really not sure where where we go from here. And I'm I'm I hate it. I feel like an armchair quarterback. I just I'm going to sit back and watch what happens. Um, but 
But you know, so then we were talking do, do we about get this a- the other day, right? Like Europe's put themselves in a real bind, right? By being energy dependent on Russia and then putting sanctions on Russia. That's a very yeah, difficult position I'm, you put yourself in. Yeah, I'm not so pessimistic. What's going to happen is, and we just have to prepare for it, we're going to be we're going to go into a recession. I I almost feel like right now, you know when you're when you're nauseous and you feel like I don't want to throw up because I hate vomiting. It mm, feels awful. But you know it's coming. But you know it's coming and you know you'll feel better after you do. The worst thing is trying to resist it and just letting that nausea, mm. you know, continue. This is where we stand right now. We need to throw up. And that throw up yeah. means It's interesting you say that cuz I think we need to throw up in 2008, let the banks fail. But you're saying now we need to throw up. So what you're you're is, for sometimes throwing up. Yeah, what I'm saying is let's keep raising rates, which the government will do. Then you're going to start seeing job, you know, unemployment start to rise. You're going to see this, okay? And we're going to go through a recession. People are going to lose their jobs. And 2023 is going to be bad, maybe even 2024. But then you kind of reset. That's what recessions have always done. Mm-hmm. Recessions are there to reset and then to rebuild. I just, to Marco's point, though, I just wonder that with debt levels so high, can we even keep these rates higher for another six months? Do, yeah, do, does it ha- you, you know what I mean? Like, rates. is this going to be, or are we just diving into a recession right now? And by January, the, the central bankers come out and say, oh, you know what? We're, they might. Yeah. What I'm saying is, no, they'll keep raising rates. And then when you see the economy crack, then they'll hold rates. Language. They'll hold rates. Then then the economy suffers for another year, and then they start cutting rates. If you had to guess, just for fun, where are where is a five year mortgage rate in Canada? So l- right now, let's call it it's you know five and a half six percent. Right. A year from now, just your best guess. No yep. one's none of us have the crystal ball. Are, are the rates higher on a five year fixed mortgage or lower? Hundred percent higher. Hundred percent higher. I, how, how much I higher? Do have a, I do have a crystal ball. Yeah. Whoa. It, it will be, love- and and it will be it will be seven and a quarter percent. Yeah, it'll rates are going to go so up another you, 125 basis points. And they're going to keep rates high for a year. And they's going to keep them there for the year because mm-hmm. inflation's still over 7%. You cannot have this. The moment, see, the moment uh, you give agreed. up. Agreed. I just think there are other variables here are energy and maybe it'll keep coming down to your point on oil earlier, mm-hmm. energy and debt. How do we keep rates at, a, when you at, say at debt, this level? National debt or our own personal debt? N- I'm talking about U.S. debt because we're all a trickle down. We're all we're all a, just a different derivative of what happens to the U.S. debt levels. This idea that the U.S. is going to crumble under its debt, mm-hmm. like you're saying, yes. trillion dollars of interest yeah. payments. They've said this since the debt when Obama took office in 2008. The national debt was at 10 trillion dollars. Yeah, I remember. Okay? Yeah. When he left office, it was at almost 20 trillion. When Trump took office, he said he was going to get rid of it in four years. Yeah, he jacked it higher. He, it went even higher. Yeah. I've heard this trope for the past 20 years. Is that okay? At, and that's fair. I think you're right because you know we can. Yeah, you're yeah, right. We actually talked about this last time. Yeah, the debt. So, so you just think then it'll that just it's, keep it's going been up. A story. Yeah. Big no, deal. No, no, no. no. And Big so deal. far, no, you're right. And and so far, history proves you're right. Let me ask you, if you if yeah. your grandmother knew how much debt we had right now. Oh my gosh. She would say that's impossible. But the value of the dollar is also different. Doesn't matter. The point I'm trying to make is debt just goes up naturally over time. And you remember last time we were here, I said inflation will bring down debt by itself. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said before, my parents, if they had a twenty thousand dollar mortgage when they first bought a house. That doesn't seem, even if they never paid it back, 20000 is nothing to did, did I cut you off there? What were you going to say? I don't remember. Oh, I yeah. have a very short-term memory. <laughs> but um, I think one of the things that it, it tells you, though, is you, so how much cash do you want to sit on? 
like I understand you want to have like you know powder. Yeah. But long term, sitting on cash, not good. Not good. Not good. Right. Like you've got to be in assets. You know whether that be gold, real estate, yeah. stocks. But as rates are going up, don't you want some cash? You listen. You always. I'm want, I'm like anti cash. Uh, you I mean, always want you know some dry powder, but over the long term, like you want to be able to take advantage of dips. Um, but long term, I mean, I'm not. It's funny when we were talking before about you know portfolio managers and whatnot. I haven't called my portfolio manager once. Mm-hmm. You know, I I accept that this is how this goes. It goes up. It goes down. What am I going to, you know, he'd I had, cli- he'd be a good client. Well, it's funny because uh, when I first, uh, <laughs> he's a great client, <laughs> I sold my business in 2006. Right. And it's the first time I sat on a little bit of money and I had a fund manager, a portfolio guy and you know, everything shit hit the fan. Mm-hmm. And I called him and said, what's going on? You know, I was 29 years old. First market correction I'd right. ever gone through. He spent 15 minutes on the phone with me and then sent me an email and fired me. He, fired he got me. rid of me. Wow. And that showed me how weak that individual was. For sure. That he couldn't deal with somebody who had first come into money. And you know, all he would have weak had to Weak or say, strong, no? Maybe he said, I don't need to bother with this guy. Maybe, I have enough clients. Maybe. But you know, this guy's a 60-year-old guy. I'm 29 years old. This is my first go around. I would have figured that he could have sat oh, there and said, Mark, yeah, yeah. you got to be patient with mm-hmm. this. These things happen. Work with me, right? Um, it, was, it was crazy how quick he got rid of him. And listen, it's his right to do whatever he wants. Um, but... I think there's going to be ups and downs, but over the long haul, you're bang on. You know, do do I think a million dollar house is going to be a million dollars in 15 years? No, I think it's going to be worth a lot more than that. I, I agree with you, but I just I don't know over two two to four years. And there's always, you know, the one thing I always say to Tom because we we have these conversations, we try to map this out. The one thing I always think about, and I don't think you think you, I feel like you think you can map this stuff out a bit better. I Probably feel I'm like, a control freak. Right. But I always feel like there's the theory of un- unintended consequences, which I put big value on. I don't know what's going to happen when we've got sovereign debt levels at 110% and interest rates at 10, because that's never happened before. I have no clue what's going to happen with it. Um, I, and I agree with you. I think we'll be fine. I don't think we're going to deteriorate into the middle ages, no electricity. Yeah. And it, and it is no a little food. bit like the boy to Fernando's point. It is a little bit like the boy who cries wolf because there have been a yeah, lot right. of talks about debt, 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 yeah. debt. And then it never happens. So yeah. Not to mention, yeah. why would you worry about something that's beyond your control? To be perfectly honest with you, I'm more focused on my debt level, not the government's. Sure. And that's fair. And, and that's, that, that's, that's what, where to place the focus. And, I think I'm trying to distill what might, the probability to Marco's point of like, what are the probabilities of what could ha- can could right. energy go higher from here? Could we have a hard recession? Can they change their story? Can they not change their mm-hmm. story and adjust my personal finances accordingly? And it all comes down to having no debt for yourself or right. very, very little right. debt, maybe just good debt, good debt and no bad debt. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. I think it's just maybe a hobby. You need some wiggle room. Yeah. It's yeah. a hobby. And I mean, you talk a lot about you know, caring about what happens to other Canadians, caring what happens to the next generation. Um, a lot of times, you know, we look to Europe and, and Fernando, you, you rightly point this out. You know, we talk about when we were younger, you could, my generation, a lot of people bought condos in downtown Toronto, right? They, they were first going up around Skydome. Everybody was doing that. I guess we're moving more towards the European model, but it's not just because of debt. It's because Toronto used to have 2 million people and now it has 6 million people. So obviously it's more difficult to buy something in downtown Toronto in 2020 than it was in 1980. Right. Uh, The next chart I have up for you guys is uh, this. I'm going to read it out. It's a tweet. It says, mind blown. The longest maturity UK government bond has crashed worse than Bitcoin. 
over the past year. So this is just having fun because now we're picking timeframes. But the reason I'm putting this up is not even to comment on the UK bond. I'm just, it was my way to introduce the, uh, the topic of Bitcoin. For what, what, what's, your, what's your current thoughts? And, and it's interesting, Fernando, because I think to me, I'm wondering, wow, was Bitcoin this like leading indicator where it came, the price kind of spiked up and it came crashing kind of down. Was it kind of telling us what would happen? And in the last six months, it's really, it's just, as everything else continues to go down, Bitcoin's not, it's kind of, I don't know if it's found its kind of base or what it's done. Does it, if it starts to move up, is it a, now a leading indicator or do you just dismiss it completely outright? I, I like crypto, okay? But I do dismiss it outright in terms of uh, as a- So it's a fun, a, it's a fun thing for not you? Not even a fun thing. The idea is like, you know, all these crypto, you know, bulls who- have always said, oh, Bitcoin is like gold and it's a great inflation hedge. Well, we saw what kind of an inflation hedge it was. It's a terrible inflation hedge because theoretically, if the bulls were right, Bitcoin should be up huge with inflation being so high. So it's not. It's not like gold. It's not like an inflation hedge. Could you, could you counter that? Because this is interesting to me by saying that since COVID, nothing's been up higher than, than Bitcoin. Like since Bitcoin was at like when COVID broke out, it was like at six or 7,000, dipped to three. It's up multiple since March 2020. You, you really, so, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure if you got the numbers right. I don't know. I, I do. I don't, I don't I know. do. Trust me on that. So, one. so Bitcoin was at six or three. Well, it, w- it was about six or seven. Then COVID hit and everything crashed down. It crashed to about three. Okay. And then it came back oh, yeah. to six or seven. Then it sat around 8,000. But again, if you're counting the bottom of 20, then it would have led a lot of assets are up since the bottom of March. But nothing more than Bitcoin. Okay. Um, so you say, therefore it is an inflation yeah. edge, but it went to 69,000 and then inflation became worse and then it fell. But so, I mean, if it's up since March, 2020, so even point, though I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, I'm just, I'm just trying to introduce that, that as like a thought. That's all. I, I hate calling it crypto. I, to me, call it blockchain. That's what we're talking about here, right? The, this new technology that emerged called blockchain, Right. I don't really know what blockchain does. It sounds like it's going to be an important, you know, thing in the future. Thing in the future. This is a seminal moment that, you know, we're going to look back on and say this was the time. I do believe in that. And the reason I say that is because, you know, internet, I know a lot of people like to use that that mm-hmm. correlation and I think there is some correlation to that. When the internet came out, no one really knew what it was. No one knew how to explain it. I mean, I, I don't even know how to explain it today. Yeah. Like what, internet, what the internet <laughs> What's is. What's the internet? Right? What is the internet? Yeah. So yet we use it every single day. It's probably the most important thing in most people's lives every single day today. So back in late 90s. Can you remember I, when Rogers, are you Rogers customer? Were you yes. here in town when Rogers lost? Yes. It's it, it was awful. For like what it was is awful. It, 48 hours and everybody yeah. was just like. It was awful. Forget it. We're yeah. back at the stone yeah, ages. Stone age. Campbell's soup for everybody in a fire in the backyard. So I remember back in the late 90s, I was in the industry and all these dot-com companies were coming in. Every company was just putting dot-com in the back of it. It would go public, make billions of dollars. You know, a company called toys.com was valued more than than Toys R Us. Yeah, I remember toys.com. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so they all crashed. NASDAQ went from 5,000 points in 2000. In the next three months, it fell to 1,000 points. So 80% decline in every company across the board. Amazon went from $105 a share down to $5 a share. Okay? Lost 95% of its value. Fast forward to today, out of that chaos came Amazon and Google and all these companies. So I do believe blockchain will be that. 
So there's something here. I just don't know how do you pick the winners, mm-hmm. right? Who are the, going to be the Amazons of the world in the future? So I like Bitcoin. I, 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 not so much Bitcoin, but I like blockchain. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something there. When you talk to your friends next time about crypto stuff, I, I, one technical challenge I'd love for you to, to, to question them on is that I, I used to work for Oracle. It was a database company. Mm-hmm. Blockchain is no, there's no technical improvement here. Blockchain is just a database and it's actually a very inefficient database and it's everything a blockchain can do can be better served by a highly performing database. Because um, it's just like a ledger format, it's right? It's just a ledger. It's and keeping a, track of Keeping things. track of shit. Right. The, 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 the innovation with Bitcoin isn't that it's a blockchain. The innovation with Bitcoin is that you can't update the ledger without expending some physical power in the form of energy and expense to go and update the ledger. That's the innovation. The innovation isn't that it's like a distributed kind of thing on the internet. That existed before blockchain. You could do that with databases. You could do it more efficiently with databases. Most of the blockchains that come into existence today are controlled by humans. Like if you take Solana by chance, it goes down every few months. They somehow communicate with people to stop the validators, which are the big nodes that are running running Solana. If you can do that, if the goal with DeFi or decentralized finance and crypto is that it's distributed and somehow very powerful and very different than Wall Street is today, how can you communicate with all the people who are running Solana and getting them to stop it in sync and then restart it together? There's no technical, that's actually just bad technical form. There's, there's nothing there. Just, so, run, just run a good database and you can do everything Solana is doing today. Is that the, why Solana is down from $258? I have no idea. I don't down tr- to $30? Yeah, maybe, maybe. It, but but Bitcoin's down, down too. So like, I mean, we could argue it both ways. But my point is with, with Bitcoin, the, the, the difference is that no human has admin privileges into the blockchain. Whereas with Ethereum, Solana, and all the other ones, there's a group of humans or a single person who has what we would call in the tech industry admin privs. They could log into the system and make changes. The beauty with Bitcoin is that you or I or no group of people can log into the ledger and stop it and start it and make changes. That's the technical innovation. It's not I see. that it's a blockchain. So I would be curious, next time you have these chats, okay. say, hey, there's this there's this crackpot that I met at this real estate brokerage yeah. who told me that the innovation with, with all this crypto stuff isn't the blockchain, because the blockchain is just like a database, but it's being packaged and sold like innovation. Hmm. It's being packaged and sold to say, hey, Fernando, this is distributed stuff. We could solve all this stuff with blockchain. The best example I have for you of that, and I'll, I'll stop talking, I, I apologize, is that in the real estate market, a lot of people would coming to me and saying, hey, Tom, blockchain is going to really kind of make the real estate market efficient because you can put titles of properties right. on the blockchain. And they're That's like, what well, I thought. Of course. And they're blown away with this. And I'm like, well, let me ask you something. If somebody moves into your house but you have the title in your name because it's on the blockchain and we can move this around and change ownership. How are you going to get them out of your house? And I'm like, do you not need a judicial system locally within a share, a judge to order that they're in your house illegally and a sheriff to go get them? So what's the thing of value then? The fact that the title's in a blockchain or that you happen to live in a system that has a judicial environment that will prove that is your house and then send a sheriff to get them out of your house. Which happens What's, now already. Which happens now all the time. Right, right. So what are we solving? I don't know. You're what right. are we solving with a blockchain? I don't know. We could just make a highly performing database, mm-hmm. give everybody access to it with so, different privileges, and we so have the same thing. So you think that in crypto, there's only one thing to invest in, and that's Bitcoin. Absolutely. Not because the other. all the Not other even stuff, Ethereum. it reminds me of tech. I was at Oracle. Okay. So I was, at, you know, I worked at Oracle. I was in the tech support department, then I went into sales. What I'm seeing now... 
What, you're, you're, no, <laughs> what I'm seeing now just reminds me of tech with pets.com. Fernando, there was a, somebody who came to me in the late 90s and they said, Tom, millionaire.com is going public. And I'm like, why, why should I invest in that? By the way, I probably had like $150 to invest in it. <laughs> but I'm like, why, why should I invest in that? And they said, well, that's where all the millionaires are going to go. And I was like, sold. <laughs> sold. I'm going to invest in this thing. <laughs> but what I'm seeing now right. reminds me of I the see. late 90s. Interesting. Exactly. Well, then the like only everybody... reason you like Bitcoin is because... It's a currency. It's no different than no, you arguing technical... for the U.S. dollar right now. Like no, you that's one of the one of believe one of in the it as a a scarce resource. That's all you see. Bitcoin. I the fact I believe that technology it's... can keep that scarcity in line because of the system of blockchain, which keeps this ledger uh, let me answer that this can't one. be affected. When the iPhone came out, I think it's Jeff Booth who I got to give credit this to. When the iPhone came out, nobody thought it would disrupt the taxi industry. Because Uber came out running on everybody's iPhone mm. and you can pick the, pick the thing. I think Bitcoin, I do like it because it's like, let's call it gold 2.0. Sure. But I think the technical innovation of what has been presented here, we can't forecast what this does and gives us over the next 10 years. Okay. Because no one forecasted that the iPhone would replace a taxi industry. And I think it's that level of innovation. What you've said today that really is, to me, profound and provocative is that you see blockchain as nothing more than just a ledger technology solution. I don't know. I worked in the and, database And I'm like, industry. wow, all this time I kept reading about all these, you know, blockchain, these cryptos that were solving what they claimed was a problem. You're saying that's nothing more than just a, a general database. ledger, a database that you can trust. That you can trust. So that's what, it. what, and these guys are trying to tell us that it's, it's, it's an innovation because they have distributed validators all over the world. Like Solana, I think, has That's seven. Interesting. But I can make a database that synchronizes with other databases perfectly That's all over the world. I, I don't understand. Crypto. Well, I I'm not trying to tell you to sell all your... Yeah. No, the thing is, we, you and I both know, it could go up multiples from here. Sure, sure. And it, technically, I might be right. And it doesn't mean it's not going to yeah. go up at that. Let's face well, it. Tom, right? Tom hates Microsoft and Microsoft has done very well for themselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was an anti-Microsoft guy and Microsoft... Uh, that was yeah. me with Tesla. I've been yeah. a Tesla bear for years, and every year I'm wrong. Every year the stock keeps going up. I'm like, well, that's yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm not trying to say it doesn't go up a thousandfold from here, Fernando. You know, which you, by the way, I know you drive a Tesla, and it's beautiful. I saw. It. I'm not even a Tesla fan. I bought it out of boredom. I love the car. I just never liked the stock. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I just yeah. sold my Tesla. Yeah. The car or the yeah. stock? What did you buy? I'm the, curious. I bought a pickup truck. Nice. Yeah. He bought, uh, Nick bought a pickup truck too. Oh, Everyone around me is buying, but we grew up with pickup trucks, so it's now funny for me to see all these pickup trucks. I love it. Very, it's just very handy. Um, I want to, there's a, two other points I want yeah. before I let you guys go, but uh, Marco, any, did you want to share anything on the Bitcoin stuff? No, I mean, I, I am a believer in it due to its scarcity. I, I am, a, that, that is what's drawn me to Bitcoin. Um, I, I find saying, you know, what, what you said about, we don't know, we didn't know what the iPhone was, mm. so we don't know what Bitcoin is. Too hypey? Well, that's that you could say that about anything then, right? right? You right. know, like we don't know. So, it, sure, it, fair. so that means yep. the potential is unlimited. Well, that means it also could end up being nothing. Um, but the scarcity is what draws me right. to Bitcoin. Um, I, I like the fact like you just you everything that is that that exists in a scarce environment that people want, the price goes up. And I know we don't like to talk about Bitcoin in terms of price, but um, no, I, I but I, I think that. that is the, the, the initial argument for Bitcoin for sure. What I'm saying is just, uh, it's a, it's a best guess. Yeah. I guess, you know, when we talk about things like, uh, having, uh, I think you wrote it down before, 
um, we were talking about um, liquidity, having yeah. having the ability to, to to move from one asset into cash or to be able to move that quickly. You can't do that with real estate, right? Mm -hmm. So if I build, you know, my entire portfolio around real estate, well, what happens if I need cash? It's not easy to just sell a house or, uh, you know, move it quickly. I think Bitcoin, the scarcity that's attributed to it, the liquidity, how quickly you can move in and out sure, of it. Sure, global liquidity too. You can right. get access to it anywhere. Right. And I do think that we are heading into unprecedented times. I do think if you look at the global system that is you know, completely uh, tied to the U.S. dollar, that looks like that's changing, right? So I don't know where that's going. And I think having some level of uh, diversity in my portfolio, and that's where Bitcoin fits in as a component of diversity. Um, I'm, I'm attracted to other areas. I still own stocks. I own real estate. I'd like to own a bunch of different assets, but for me, Bitcoin right now makes a lot of sense, but I don't know where it's going to be in 10 years. Sure. And you're comfortable with that. Yeah. Um, there, I was going to ask you guys your thoughts, the latest thoughts on the media, but I'm going to skip it just out of interest of time. I want to kind of just wrap up with life. So are there some things, some principles that you live live by that you like to share with your family? We, we talked about making decisions, but I feel there's more there. Like if you're thinking about that, do you share some principles with your family in business, in your investing style? Is there something that comes to mind that you just like, this is the way I live? Rado, I'm going to ask you the same question. Hey, you better have a good answer, dude. Yeah, my, my answer to that is, you know, and, and I am a firm believer, I'm, I'm religious, um, you know, and I, I, to me, the religions of the world, they may all be very different, but they That's, also, yeah, in all our talks, you've never really brought yeah, that up. I mean, they, they all though share similar values. And so I'm a big believer in karma and, and, you know, let's call them Christian values because that's what I am. But I, and going back to your point with it, you made a comment, you both did about the, the, the banks, right? And part of me always has this soft spot for, you know, we're almost, I've never been a person who thought that, you know, oh, we shouldn't pay taxes or we pay too high taxes. I always feel like if you've been blessed, you should give something more than people that aren't blessed. So, you know, that's sort of what I always say to, to my kids in terms of our principles are, yes, make a lot of money. I don't think God or, or, or karma or the universe has any problem with people making a lot of money, but I think it does have a problem with making money um, at the expense of someone else. And so, you know, that's just my own personal mm -hmm. belief is that, you know, with all these things, I've never been one. I'm not a good negotiator with like, let's say someone's doing work at my house. I always give the same speech to a contractor that's doing any work at my house. I always give this speech. I always say, look, I'm not going to grind you for price. Okay. I want you to be happy. I want you to come to this job and be happy. But at the same time, I don't want to be taken advantage of. So if I find out that you just inflated a cost and you charge someone else less just because you thought you could take advantage, that will really bother me. So give me a number that you think is fair, that you're going to be happy with, and I'm going to be happy with. And routinely, these people will say to me, my favorite work was being done at your house because you were the best customer because you were, you know... I always pay on time. I always like, yeah. you know. You're going to answer your phone call. You're getting your phone calls answered. And, so and there's value my, to that. That's my philosophy. So, okay, one one more thing. In business, you've, you've done a lot in business then, and you've been wronged for sure multiple Lots times. times. What like What is your default kind of uh, playbook for when you're wrong and how you act 
next. So for example, sometimes in, in Rockstar, Nick and I, like everyone, you know, you're wronged by some people and we will always default to what's the right thing to do here. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's remove emotion. Absolutely. Good. What's the right thing to do in this space. And sometimes the right thing to do is like hard to, to swallow, but mm-hmm. you just kind of do the right thing. Sometimes it costs us money when we, when we kind of think maybe we shouldn't need to be spending this money, but mm-hmm. that's kind of the right thing to do. So that's kind of our playbook. What's the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. Do you have something when you've been wronged in business that you fall back on is to guide you? I don't get jaded. If I've ever been wronged, I don't get jaded. It's not like I, be, I come out. I've never been one who's very super sti- or, uh, sorry, suspicious of people's motives. Or I always assume mm. people are going to be operating in good faith. And that's a nice way to live. You know, and, and when I get, uh, you know, I tell this quick story. My son, Michael, when he turned 12, he would be given these Steam cards where he could buy stuff online. I don't know if I've told you this story before, but he, he collected $300 worth of gift cards from all my family that gave him these cards. He then bought a virtual knife online with his $300, a virtual knife for a game, right? He was very proud of it. He had a friend online that lived in the U.S., never met him, just an online friend, who said, oh, Michael, can I see it? And Michael released it to him. Oh. Then the guy kept it and blocked Michael and disappeared. My other son, Joey, at the time, he was a year older, he came running up, Michael lost his $300 knife, and Michael was crying his eyes out. And I went up to him, and I started to lecture him, saying, Michael, this wasn't a friend. This person's online. You can't trust them. And midway through my sentence, I said, what am I doing? I said, Michael, don't ever change. Trust people. Yeah, sometimes you'll get screwed. Sometimes, you know, people will take advantage of your, of your naivety and all that, but that's the better person. Like you're better off living life, not being suspicious and always looking for the angle. It is a nice way to live. You know, and that was me. I did get screwed a lot in my life. I did get, you know, taken advantage of, but I don't mind in the grand scheme of things. So you lose a $300 life. That's a lot of money. Make no mistake. But goes back to your decision making because you will get screwed if I can read you properly and then you will just make a decision to be okay with it and move on to the next okay. thing and you know you're going to recover from it. That's awesome that you can live like that. I mean, I, I can get a little bit consumed by things like that sometimes. Um, I think Fernando sounds like he's going to live till he's 100. No, no, no. Uh, no, he does, but it's great. I'm, I'm saying that that's, that's a skill. That's a talent that you have. Um, it, it's, it's not easy Yeah, I wonder if he's born with that. it yeah, or d- developed. Yeah, I mean, it. it's funny because, you know, I, I just try to live my life. I would define it differently than you. I'm not spiritual. I don't use words like karma. I don't say things like things happen. Everything happens for a reason. Um, but I still that, live my life like that. You yeah. hate that line. I do. I hate that line. Sometimes I, I, I text it, uh, Marco. I'm like, oh, everything happens for a reason. He's like, I never tell me that. I just, I, I never understand what people mean by that. Things happen because they happen. I'm, I'm, I, I think things happen through chaos. I think things like, you know, of course everything happens for a you're reason. You're very level-headed. You're saying this, that thing you can't let things go, maybe like Fernando, but I find you very level-headed about I do situation. Too. Yeah. yeah, I try I try to take emotion out of my decisions. So do you, you, have, a mo- you have a moment of just piffery yeah, or pissed I, you know, off about shit? Sometimes sometimes it's, you know, did you not get a good night of sleep? You know, mm-hmm. uh, how are things going? And you're, you're a bit crankier. But I do believe in everything that Fernando is saying. Be a good person. You know, like that, maybe my definition of karma is just different, but I'm just, I just think we all need to be good. It makes the world work better. You know, if we all think in an animalistic way, it's going to be bad for all of us in the, in the long run. And I, I, I want to say I love paying taxes, but I mean, I've used the medical system significantly in over my years. So I'm very happy to pay taxes in this country. I just want those taxes to be spent better. You know, like I get sick and tired. Like 
I hate almost all politicians. I really do because I've put my faith in some of them since I was, you know, I majored in politics. So, you know, you grow up, you start leaning left, you start leaning right. This guy's going to change. This guy's going to change that. And it's really bothering me that, that I just see that both sides of the political spectrum to me are degrading and it's, it's not good for all of us. And I, and I want to fix that. Like when we talk about, so how do we getting... get housing? Sorry, how do we get housing going? Oh, we need better level of communication between. That's not going to happen. Right. It's right. not going to happen until there's a major change. And I don't know what's going to, you know, like facilitate that major change. And this is my 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 thing about talking about the law of unintended consequences. I don't know where we're going with interest rates, with government debt, with Bitcoin, with all these things. I have no clue. Like you said, I'm trying to put some of the pieces together so that I can maybe best guess. But I have, I don't want to say I have no faith in my my prognostications, but I'm not, you know, going to bet everything on any one of those. So let, me, so let me ask you something. When you get worked up about something, how do you find, what's your mental self-talk? So when you do find yourself getting like angst about some situation in business where someone's wronged you or something, do you just say, oh, I haven't slept well. I need to take a break and kind of just, you know respond to this later like what is your playbook for handling bullshit that comes your way well look it depends what kind of bullshit it is right so if it's bullshit at work well i have to address it i can't ignore it i have to deal with that individual and that's a situation where i try to take the emotion out of it um when i act how, how do you take the emotion out of it do you just take a break I use logic i use logic i don't i i never I don't yell when I'm at the, well, maybe some people at the office might think I yell, but it's nothing compared to a, like I was using <laughs> that feel? as a child, you know? <laughs> um, but, uh, you've, you've got to be level-headed at work. Um, mm -hmm. you've got to, you've got to make the practical decision. You have to do what's best for the business because when you're doing what's best for the business, a, it's doing what's best for my family, but it's doing what's best for all of the employees there. Right. So I don't want to get into, you know, specific situations at work, but you know, then if you roll outside of work, I try when I get worked up you know, in a discussion with somebody, if it's about politics or religion or something like that, and they're trying to push their narrative on me, I've really changed as a person in terms of, I just let them have their peace. And if I'm, if I can't change their mind, or I'm not trying to change their mind, but if they've got, you know, their ears covered and their mouth going, you're not going to be able to get through to that person. And when I, I used to get worked up. So about you have empathy, things. you have empathy for empathy, but I also look back and I say, you know, I have a good life. What do I care if that person is you know, spouting this bullshit, mm. go right ahead, do it all you want. I have a good life. I'm very happy. I've got a you know great wife, great kids, a lot of great friends and family in my life. I still have my parents alive. I have an amazing life. And when I just say those words to myself, all of a sudden I get a smile on my face and that's all I need. It's almost like you come to realize at some point in your life that life's a circus and you just kind of go with the flow and yeah. let it be, and it be goes, the good person that you can be. You're never going to yeah. predict debt levels or Bitcoin. Right. And you just kind of right. like, you're here for the ride. Let it fall. You're never going to get the three levels of government to talk. <laughs> you're just, just go with it. You're 50 or 49. January, I'm 50. Yeah. Right. Oh, so, you know, you're, you're, you're on the back, back. I'm on the lap back. Right. I'm on you're, the lap yeah, back. Exactly. Right. And you've done very well for, himself, for yourself. You're in a great position. Great wife, great kids. We got to enjoy it, right? We got to enjoy it. And we got to help as many other people we can enjoy their lives and, and you know, live out the rest of our days as happy as we can. I kept you guys here for a long time. I appreciate this, uh, both of you. Am I cutting you? Anything else you guys either oh, wanted right, to share? You ended it. was yeah, perfect. Yeah, that was a good, uh, good way to perfect end. Time. Really, thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you, Rado. Thank you, Fernando. Appreciate this. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Thanks, Fernando. Hey everyone, hopefully you enjoyed that chat with Marco and Fernando. We'll have them back on again. If anyone has any requests of what you want these two guys to talk about or discuss, please share them with us. 
And if you are listening to this and you want to get some real estate investing information, but you're not sure where to start, well, we have the answer for you. You can visit rockstarinnercircle.com to get free access to videos that we put out, podcasts like this, free reports. Um, we have links to the introductory training class that we give for free, where we explain how we work with real estate investors right across Ontario. You can get access to that and register for the next time we are doing one of those classes, all available to you at rockstarinnercircle.com. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms.